And there I am, clothed, you'll be pleased to know, um, behind um, behind James Brown. This is on his piano singing Good Golly Miss Molly, sort of clapping away in the backgrounds like that. And, um, you know, so my claim to fame is, is that I've appeared on Baywatch. Graham Goodkind is the founder and chairman of Frank PR, one of the UK's most respected and consistently award-winning consumer PR consultancies. Graham and his team have won just about every PR award there is. And in this episode of the Wonderful People podcast, we just scratched the surface of the amazing stories and campaigns that have come from Frank PR over the years. We hear of some insights into buying and selling businesses, about following your passion, and about the incredible power of creativity. We also hear about Paranta. Not sure if you've heard about that, so listen up. And also a very special thing we find out about Graham and his best moment in business. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to leave us a review, share and subscribe. Graham, if you could be stuck in a lift with someone, anyone you like, who would it be and why? Well, Dan, I'm going to choose a couple of people. It doesn't have to be um, together in the lift at the same time, but uh, I don't want to um, upset my wife too much by not saying the lovely Mrs. Goodkind, a.k.a. Lisa, um, who um, would be a comforting presence, probably would work out how to get the lift working again, because she's sort of <laughs> quite technical like that, um, and um, would probably have nagged me about why did we get the lift in the first place and why didn't we take the stairs if we hadn't got stuck in it. So that would be one person, but she'd get upset if I didn't say her. But the person I'd really like to be stuck in the lift with probably for a while is uh, Arsene Wenger. He's one of my um, heroes. Anyone that knows me vaguely well knows that I'm a, a, a massive Arsenal fan, have been since uh, since I knew anything about anything. Um, and um, the guy brought me uh, more pleasure and joy in my football life than uh, anyone else has, but also did it in a way that, impressed me massively. I was lucky enough to meet him a few times. Once I had uh, dinner with him, um, a group of us had dinner right. with him and um, it was a kind of sponsors thing. It was actually in the Diamond Club at the Emirates Stadium um, and someone had bid for it in a charity, one of those charity auction prizes that you could have dinner with uh, with Wenger and um, we sort of uh, got there and, you know, we thought, okay, he's going to be there an hour. He's going to, you know, whiz through dinner with us and stuff like that. So we, you know, and then, and then go off and be very polite and very nice. So we all turned up about seven o'clock for a, a drink with him and get ready to have, you know, what was a lovely dinner in the Diamond Club. Obviously, there wasn't a match going on. It was just there. And I think they were trying to kick us out about midnight. The stewards were getting a bit peed off that we were um, all still there and still talking and stuff like that. The Venga holding court and um, really being, you know, I know, someone that I met that was my hero. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't like to meet your heroes because, you know, sometimes it's not always what it's cut, up, cut out to be. But um, he was definitely someone that was already my hero, but went up in my estimations after being in his company for the best part of four or five hours one evening. So, yeah, I'd like to do that again and uh, catch up with him and find out what's happened over the last few years, particularly, you know, when he left Arsenal and that whole episode. Brilliant answer. I, I tell you what, I want to be in that lift as well. And I want Phil <laughs> to be in that lift, just so he can be the only Man United fan amongst all the Gooners. That would be a beautiful lift. 
Well, he didn't. He didn't have his best, and Wenger didn't have a best relationship with your old manager Ferguson. Although it did thaw over the years, and they did get to be pally towards the end. I think when you've got great managers like that, and they were both great managers, they, there's healthy respect going on. So I have actually met Wenger myself, and which Dan, I never even told you that, did I? No. Well, I did the original Premier League website, and we used to get invited to a lot of Premier League events and he and Alex Ferguson were on a panel that they'd organised for Save the Children and they invited a group of us and we had the most amazing time and they they were both eloquent, even Alex, you don't expect to elo- eloquent really, it's quite a grumpy character but they were both brilliant. Um, so I'm going to ask you to start at the beginning, how did you actually get into PR and how did you decide, decide you wanted to go it alone and build your own business? Well, I think in terms of how I got into PR, I mean, I was I I, I graduated with a degree in business studies, um, which was from that great institution, the City of London Polytechnic, um, which obviously did disappoint my mother. And being a typical Jewish mother, that it wasn't a university, but um, luckily um, it has since become a university. It's now London Metropolitan University, so. You know, my mum's sort of vaguely happy again that, that I did go to university, <laughs> even though it wasn't at the time. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. I kind of had no idea. Um, and um, I was one of those people that, um, you know, was, was, I guess, a late developer in terms of I didn't have any driven direction. I was doing a lot of sales jobs and earning money here and there, selling double glazing, exterior coating, texture coating for the outside walls of houses, advertising space in magazines, local business calendars, just earning money um, and saved it up and, and went off to America for six months. Went off to America, uh, coached some soccer, did some traveling, did some whatever work that I could get, um, came back and was a bit of a loose end. And a, a friend of mine who I knew actually from Arsenal away trips, it was uh, one of the guys I used to go with, it was her, his uh, fiance, I think, or girlfriend at the time became fiance. She was working at a PR agency called Lim Franks, um, and she said, "Look, you know, I know you just come back to America. Do you want to, you know, do you want to see what it's like? Come in to do um, a bit of work experience." And I said, "Sure." You know, kind of, I didn't know anything about it, and uh, you know, I'd done a degree, my business degree, had specialised in marketing, and literally, I'd done maybe two or three lectures on PR in in the three year course. So I, I didn't really know a lot about PR. I'd heard of it and was aware of it, and loosely knew what it meant. Um, and I went in and I thought, okay, well, first day, this is Lim Franks. I didn't really know about Lim Franks as an agency. And it was at the time the coolest PR agency that you could work at in London. Everyone was dying to work there. It was the height of of, of kind of the trends in fashion and, and lifestyle and everything like that. And it was a really a fashion PR agency. So I, I didn't know what to do. I was kind of just, you know, kind of a, a quite an innocent kid from Northwest London. So I went on a day one in um, my, my only suit and tie looking really, really smart because I thought working in office, this is kind of what you do. Um, and um, uh, I stood out like a massively sore thumb. You know, everyone was, you know, there in the latest Vivian Westwood gear, the latest designer, fashion, Catherine Hamner, you know, all that sort of stuff. And there I was wearing basically the suit that I'd worn for my mitzvah, um, which was probably quite <laughs> ill-fitting. Uh, at, at that stage um so that was sort of my first <laughs> memories of pr was very um uh, very self-conscious about my own uh, personal uh, style but it was 
you know, the, as I said, the agency to work on. So I went in there, I, I did some work experience and the work experience involved working on a, it was actually a new business pitch they were working on for Lloyds Bank, which was for them quite a big departure into the mainstream world of sort of corporates and corporate brands. And Lloyds Bank basically wanted to become more fashionable was the brief. And the brief was how could they become more fashionable? And I worked up, uh, uh, you know, so it was work experience. So it was unpaid at the time and, you know, self-funding, I guess, to go and work somewhere. I worked up for them this whole plan of basically a fashion competition, a fashion challenge. We called it the Lloyds Bank Fashion Challenge, which was a, a competition for kids to design an outfit um, to either go to, a, to go to a nightclub and then to go or to go and visit a bank manager and then another outfit to go and visit a nightclub. And that was the sort of fashion competition. And I'd, I'd kind of worked on the whole plan, the creative of it, the, how it would stage, it would kind of go as a roadshow around the country and spent sort of literally probably about three, four, five weeks putting together the intricate logistics of, of this campaign and how it would work, and the shopping centres, it would visit all the local judges. It was, it was a lot of detail to it. Anyway, they pitched for the, uh, the job uh, and they won it. And I remember the CEO at the time, who was Liz, Lynn's husband, Paul, he, he came to me and he said, look, you know, we just found out we won the business. You put all the work into it. You know everything that you know. We're, we're all how it all works. Do you want a job? And you can. This can be, you know, your account to work on. I said, love it. And by that time, it was, well, you know, I'd, I'd kind of obviously got my fashion sense right, and also grown to love <laughs> this 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 mad world of PR, where you know at the time, you know, Lim Franks was the coolest agency in town. You know, they kind of did. So so I did that, and then, then you know the other stuff I had. Was doing all the celebrities that they that they had, so they were working for like Naina Cherry at the time, who was the uh, musician who's you know still going, very very talented. We had all the celebrities like Ruby Wax, French and Saunders, Lenny Henry, even I know you don't kind of mention the name anymore. Even Gary Glitter was uh, a, cl- a client back in the day of uh, when he was kind of before he'd got um, done for all his alleged offences. We should. Um, probably use the word alleged here, but even, you know, he was client. So, you know, that that sort of PR actually didn't interest me that much. The celebrity PR, which they did a lot of, to me was very easy. It was, you were basically a glorified secretary. You had journalists and media calling you up saying, can I do an interview with Lenny? Can I do an interview with French and Saunders or whatever? Or normally on the back of a tour or a new TV program they had coming out. And you then liaise with the celebrity's agent or them directly sometimes booked in a time, sat in an interview. They said the same thing over and over again. And I wasn't, it was kind of glamorous, but it wasn't challenging for me. And I much preferred your Lloyds Bank fashion challenges where you had a brief, you had to come up with a concept, create something out of nothing where there was nothing really happening. And then, you know, build and develop that and then sell that, that concept. in. so that's the, the bit I started to, um, specialising really in terms of that, that that side, and at the time, you know, Lynn was the, the creative energy, I guess, behind the business, and Paul was the business energy, and and I guess, you know, all the time I was watching and learning and seeing what they were doing that I liked, and you know, also you know, looking at how not to do things and things I'd never done it, and I was always quite entrepreneurial, as I said, I'd just fallen into PR by a happy coincidence of of, of knowing someone. Um, in it and and you know I was always a business guy first I mean I just happened to love PR and found like an area that I love but I was always thinking one day maybe if I did it myself um, you know um, how would I do it it's a bit like the 
football, you know, to use football analogies, which I'm very big on and I love using. It was a bit, <laughs> you know, you hear a lot of the players talking that when they were playing for a club, they always, you know, they've, they've learned different bits under the different managers they've played for that they've applied in there, you know, because they want to become coaches or managers. I guess I was always the same. I was, you know, loved the business side of things and, and that's how I've naturally been brought up. Um, and um, I was learning here and I was liking bits that were happening and, and not happening. I thought, you know, one day I'd like to do this myself. I'd like to do my own my own thing one day. But, you know, no no great rush. Brilliant. Thank you, Graham. That's awesome. And it opens up so many questions, but I'm going to segue slightly and... Um, you know, you know, Wonderful's a digital creative agency, so we'd love the tech stuff and we love the digital stuff. You also were involved in that from early on as well. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you got into a kind of dot-com venture alongside this. Sure, sure. Well, fast forward, you know, I joined Lim Franks in 88, literally at Christmas 88, just before then. Um, seems a long time ago now, doesn't it, when you sort of say in the 80s. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, this was fast forward to, I guess, 96 and, and I'd, I'd sort of risen up through the rank, uh, through the ranks at Lynn Franks and had gone from being a junior account executive when I started to MD. Um, and I was, I was running the place and Lynn had, Lynn and Paul had, had moved on. They sold the business to, to, uh, to actually a French company, uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, and, you know, they'd moved on. There had been a, young board of directors of which I would have been part of and then um, the girl that I said at the start that, that gave me the job that asked me if I wanted to come in and work experience she'd moved up to chairman and she was working three days a week and she'd had a couple of kids and I was the managing director running the business day to day um, and um, so that, that's where the sort of business had gone really in, in eight nine years and it was quite a rapid rise and I kind of knew what I was doing sometimes and didn't know what I was doing um, other times, but I was a bit learning on the job, but still kept my hands in in, in the PR bit. And um, being a massive Arsenal fan, I was um, uh, one of the first people, I think I was the first person in, in Lim Franks to, to get a modem and internet connection. I was just fascinated by this thing that I'd heard of called the internet. Just I like new things and was playing with it and could see, you know, this is this is going to be big. And you know, when you know something, I guess nowadays people that had, you know, sort of bought Bitcoin four or five years ago, they knew it was going to be big. I guess it was back in the day that was me with this thing called the internet. And I knew there was something about it that was special. And, and particularly for PR, that had massive application in terms of uh, what we were doing. And, and, and being an Arsenal fan, I'd try to find on the internet, early, early days of the internet, information about Arsenal. And I'd join this Arsenal news group, I think it was. And, I, you know, people were exchanging a bit of information in very rudimentary ways via their dial-up modem connections. And they were talking about, you know, is Arsenal going to have its own website? It seems a bit of a stupid conversation now, but people didn't have websites then. And it was like a really, really new thing to have a website. And I'd, I'd followed this conversation and, a friend of mine who was uh, called Jeremy, who was, who'd, who'd been in the city, um, and he'd sort of got out of the city because he could see that the internet was going to be big and set up a basically a web design company, a design agency. And I said to him, he was also a massive Arsenal fan, we used to go together to a lot of games, and I said to him, look, how about we do this thing together? I was still at Lim Franks running it. Um, I said, you know, I'll, let's approach Arsenal. I'll approach them because I've seen this guy on one of these news groups who seems to be like the technical bloke at Arsenal. 
Um, how about, you know, we kind of go to Arsenal and, and pitch for their website. I'll do all the marketing and I'll do all the copywriting for it and, and everything like that. And the creative side of it, you do, um, you know, the design and build of the website. He said, sure. So I got in touch with this guy online at, at Arsenal. Um, then turned out he was interested in potentially talking about a website. I remember going in with Jeremy pitching to David Dean back in the day when he was the guy running the show at Arsenal in the old clock end of, of Highbury. We were in a box there that they used to use as an office doing a pitch for the Arsenal website. And and as and we got the gig, so that was great. Didn't get paid a lot of money, but it was a labour of love for me and Jeremy. I was, actually, I couldn't even have justified doing it as part of my weekdays at Lynn Franks. I had to do it on the weekends with Jeremy round in, round his flat. Um, and we were building this website. And and we've just had the, the, the domain, obviously, arsenal.co.uk. And I, me and him were saying, oh, I'd love to be Graham at arsenal.co.uk. Wouldn't that be the best email address ever? Instead of, you know, in those days being, I don't know, Graham Goodkind at limfrankspr.co.uk. So that was who you're working for. Or, you know, gg19374 at hotmail.com. You know, I'd love to be something that, you know, said something about myself. Clearly, if I had an Arsenal address, I was an Arsenal fan. And I wanted an email address that could express how I felt or what I was like or my interests or my hobbies. And we sort of got talking about an idea, well, why, why don't we build something whereby you can do that? So it was all as a result of the Arsenal account and doing that, that we came up with this idea for what originally was called Funmail, which was the dot-com venture, which was a bit like Hotmail, but a lot more fun. And we went out and we bought... Um, I think in the early days, about 45, 50,000 domain names, a bit after the at sign. Um, so you could be, um, you know, whatever you wanted. You could have 20 different email addresses all pointing into the same inbox, be different things to different people whenever you felt like it. So I could be, I don't know, Graham at iloveArsenal.co.uk. Obviously, we didn't want to infringe any trademarks so, or copyright, so we didn't want to buy anyone's intellectual property. But, you know, iloveArsenal.co.uk would have been a good one to get, I, you know. Um, you know, Dan, you could have been Dan at horny.co.uk if you, you know, particularly felt like that. You know, <laughs> Phil, you could have been Phil at very serious.co.uk. Whatever you wanted yeah. to do, um, you know, you could buy up, uh, not buy, you could use one of these different um, email addresses. And as I said, have up to 20 pointing into one account. So that was the, the, the venture that, that we set up. I ended up leaving Lynn Franks. Um, I sold out my shares to the French people that bought Lynn out. So I thought that was a good time to exit and went into business with Jeremy. We went into business with a few other people as well. We got on board who were experts in early internet pioneers, you could call them, a uh, really good sort of tech guy because obviously you needed the, the back-end technology to do it. We raised, um, in those days, a quarter million pound in angel funding, you call it these days, which was the seed money that went into it. Um, and just went out and, and tried to take on the world really in terms of getting people to use the service. And we got up to uh, to, to 40,000 people using it in the beta test, which was a significant number. Um, you know, worked out how to work the technology because it was a bit fiddly in those days, having up to 20 different, I mean, you could have had more, but we had up to 20 different email addresses that you could use. So, you know, Dan, you might, you, Dan might not want to be Dan at horny.co.uk if he was emailing his bank manager, for example. Um, but, you know, if he's emailing his wife, he would. So you had to work out the tech for, for behind which email address you might want to use. For might be the other way around. <laughs> exactly. Depends how much money you want to. Um, and um, 
and uh, uh, so so we we did all that, and um, then six months later we um, had grown, and we sort of you know the the the, the the, the service had been validated by the amount of people that we had on board and we went for a float and this is where you know my partner Jeremy had been in the city and he went back to his old firm um, uh, Pam Muir Gordon, Pam Muir Gordon they were called then to float us and I went around the whole experience of you know going to see all these people that you do when you're going to do an IPO and uh, all the potential investment funds that are putting in all this money and all the legal work all the county work it was a nightmare to do in such a short space of time um, and three days before we were going to float on the stock exchange and I'd have been the MD of a, of a public company um, we had a private investment fund that, that, that came in and bought um, 20% of the business for $10 million which at the time valued this fledgling business with no assets or anything just an idea at 31 and a quarter million pounds um, which wow. was, you know, the early, this was the early, this was in uh, '98, so early. Sorry, yeah, it was in '98. This was early, early days of the internet. Um, and um, you know, I'd worked at Limfranks for all those years. It was a proper business with loads of people, you know, clients, cash flow, and here was just an idea for a, a free web-based email service um, with zero revenue. And actually, zero potential of revenue, although we didn't know that at the time necessarily. Um, you know that that was was suddenly valued at thirty one and a quarter million pounds. So I was sitting, you know, I was a multi millionaire on paper. Uh, you know, at that age, I mean, I couldn't cash out, unfortunately, um, because I probably would have at that time. But you know, they put all their money in. Their ten million dollars was to to grow the business. And a year later, we were up um, at a million and a half users of the service. Um, you know. Wow. You know, literally millions of emails a day um, being used to the service. You know, lots of, um, uh, you know, TV advertising campaigns, you know, high profile. We'd rebranded the business by then to be called another.com. Kind of ironic uh, email, very popular in the youth market. And I guess I used a lot of that, my youth marketing experience and the brands I've worked on at my time at Lim Franks and infused that energy into the business a bit. So we were very strong in that. But we weren't making any money. I mean, I was looking at how much revenue we were generating from all these users on a monthly basis. And, you know, I remember one month, you know, I was looking at and it was, you know, it was it was about 60 was the revenue we're generating from a million and a half users. Now, most people said 60, wow. you know, what, 60,000 like that a month? Well, I said, no, 60 pounds. That's how much money we were generating wow. from all those users. There was no money in it. Um, so... That was the bubble, the internet first bubble, and it started collapsing. And uh, you know, we were getting, we'd, we'd grown this business, had about fifty people in our lovely offices in Kentish Town, million and a half users, and um, you know, we're making, if we we're lucky, hundred quid a month in terms of revenue and spending whatever the burn rate was, um, you know, masses amounts of money, you know, half a million pound a month sometimes. So um, we then had to raise some more money. And that's when I thought, like, I want to get out of this because this is, this is trouble. And myself and one of the other very small shareholders um, sold out. And the people that had invested the fund that had put their money in and $10 million went in and pumped some more money in, bought me and, and one of the other smaller shareholders as I said, out. And um, I, I, you know, I made some money out of it. I, you know, certainly not what I was worth on paper a year before that, nowhere near that. But um, it was a brilliant experience um, for me in terms of, 
Uh, it's a bit like I don't know. It's a bit like the Wild West, sort of the, you know, the, in terms of in terms of what it was like and the people that was involved, and, and you know, it's like a gold rush. It really was. Um, and um, you know, I got out of it, and by that time, my restricted covenants at, um, at Lim Franks had, had had expired, so I was free to to work in uh, public relations again. So that helped, and I thought, um, you know, I kind of I kind of fancy getting back. Uh, back in the game and um you know so that's sort of how i set up frankly i came out of that and one of the um one of the guys i've been working with one of my clients at lim franks was the ex-marketing director of uh what was the marketing director at the time of um sega and virgin um and he was a bit of a marketing guru called phil lay and i got him on board when i had another com as as my marketing guru to work with his agency he had a, a consultancy called branded which was a you know had lots of different clients a lot in the dot com and um sector as as well as sort of like quite you know cool rapidly expanding businesses and i'd worked with him and had him as my basically effectively my out outsourced marketing director um and after i got out of another dot com i I sort of said to, he was said to me, Gigi, you know, can you recommend the PR agency for me? Because all his clients were looking also for recommendations of PR agencies. And I said to him, Well, instead of you know recommending other PR agencies, why don't why don't we set up an agency together? And that's literally how uh, how Frank was born. I mean, it was obviously a bit more complicated than that, but um, we set up a business as as you know relying on branded for um, a lot of their clients as as our you know, as clients that could come into to Frank. I got a couple of people out of then. Limfranks had got consumed once it had got bought by the French into another agency and had become part of an agent, a big group called Ketchum, which is still going today. So there was a lot of people had left and, 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 and one of my mates who I'd been with and I'd actually given a job to, Andrew, uh, I said to him, why don't you come out of Ketchum? He'd stayed with Ketchum the whole time. I said, come out of that and uh, come and join me at Frank. And he said, okay, there's this other lady that I've been working with called Nadia. She's really good. I think she'll be up for it as well. So great. So I got Nadia and Andrew um, to, to come and set up Frank with me. And I got another uh, lady called Lee, who had been my PA, office manager, secretary, also uh, at Lynn Franks. So I got her to, to come and join me. And, and, and Frank was born on September the 1st, 2000, as, as, as four people um, doing uh, in a lovely office in Chelsea, which wasn't very us. Um, in just off the Fulham Road, um, because actually our client was uh, someone that we contracted uh, PR services in uh, in for rent, and we were born there on September the first, two thousand, with the four of us in the office hustling away for for some new business. Amazing! What a journey! Well, wow. enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am going to ask you about. Um, you've won a lot of awards in for various projects, and let's focus on one that was the quite a biggie was the Weetabix. Tell us a little bit about the Weetabix campaign, and then going on from that, going off that, that, how do you maximise an award once you've got it? How do you actually make that work hard for you? So, yeah, okay. Well, the, the Weetabix campaign. Um, it happened last year and really was 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 kind of brilliant um for the agency it was brilliant timing as well for for me personally but we'll come on to that later um of as to why but um for Weetabix some of the brand objectives were to 
um, maximize their any which way abix um, campaign, which still runs today, which is basically saying, you know, how do you eat yours? You know, how do you enjoy your Weetabix? It's not only about having Weetabix with some milk on top or maybe a bit of honey. There are lots more um, sugar or whatever you want to have it with. There's lots of more creative ways of of enjoying your Weetabix. So we looked into the area of unusual food combinations and there was quite a lot of it on online and from research. And indeed, actually, we'd seen someone somewhere um, so I think it's quite a good idea, actually. And someone was asking me about it the other week. They they mixed Weetabix with chicken, so they they sort of like broken up a Weetabix and then used it as a coating on on a chicken, a bit tempura-y, like fried chicken style. I, apparently, it's really nice, and 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 so so you kind of don't knock it. I can see you shaking your heads. Don't knock it till you tried it. But it's, it's quite nice. But 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 we quite like we quite like the idea of these unusual food combinations. So we went away and we, but we thought we'd do it in a slightly different way. What we try and do is we try and do these official combinations. So we pair up with some other brands. And then the twist, which was, you know, I have to take a little bit of credit for, actually a lot of credit for, was actually, I, I suggested, and we did do it this way, we put them all together. So instead of seeding them out one after the other, after the other, I said, let's try and do them all in one day. So that it looks like brands are jumping on the bandwagon. Um, and you know maybe that will create other brands to do it. So so we lined up um, a peanut butter brand, pick a nut. So Weetabix and peanut butter isn't that exciting. We lined up Marmite, so the fish and Marmite, Weetabix and Marmite, which you know kind of love it or hate it, I guess. Um, we lined up innocent smoothies, so you know pouring a pouring some innocent over, and we lined up obviously the last one was. Uh, the, the cherry on the cake, or should I say, the beans on the, the cake was 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 Heinz beans. So we uh, was 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 Heinz baked beans and Weetabix, and we kind of gradually released it like these brands were jumping on on each other, or or, or a pylon as we call it, or and 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 sure enough, it 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 took off, and loads of other brands um, jumped on it, and there was the most unbelievable um, build on that. We were interacting with all those people as they were doing at the time, having what they've now called branter, which is brand banter um, amongst each other. Um, so our team here at Frank was, was, was furiously interacting with everyone that was suggesting their own stuff or doing their own concoctions or people that were then going out to the supermarket literally and buying um, baked beans and trying them on their Weetabix. I mean, they were trying the others as well, but nowhere near as much and you know, I mean, what can I say? It, you know, it, as as everyone knows, the rest is history. It went absolutely mad in terms of um, the uh, you know the, the, the traction that it that it achieved, and uh, you know went round the round the internet and, and back. Brands piled on, and we had this brand banter, this um, uh, banter with with other with other brands as they did it. And I'm just going to read out a few of the comments that other brands did as part of this. Parlon, there was like uh, 500 different brands. Pardon, my favourites were um, Tinder, the official um, Tinder uh, uh, Twitter said, "Trust us, uh, this is not a match." The NHS tweeted, "You know, this is the height of COVID as well." So, you know, also part of the reason why this was successful is it was during COVID's time, where we all needed a bit of cheering up, and you know, this this was kind of light-hearted and just eased the lockdown boredom a little bit. The NHS uh, tweeted that that tweet, which was the Weetabix and Bean tweet, should come with a health warning. Um, 
Domino's pizza, and I disagree with this, as did a lot of people. They said that pineapple on pizza is the most controversial food combination ever. Obviously, kind of, you agree with that on, or not? I don't know. I, I, we disagreed. The Greater Manchester Police Force um, decided to get all punny about it. They said we've been looking into this after a number of complaints today, due to its serious nature. We've passed this over to our major incident team, who deal with serial killers. That was from from Greater <laughs> Manchester. Um, Shakespeare's Globe very poetically said to be or not to be. That is the question. Official uh, Twitter account of Wimbledon uh, Tennis said, quiet, please. Um, uh, Google even said, look at what you've done now. And they showed a photo of the Google search with Weetabix and Beans coming top of the predictive search results because of the story that day. Pfizer uh, said, haven't our scientists worked hard enough without having to come up with an antidote um, to this? And I think my favourite one that came towards the back end of the day was from the Israeli government. So this is an official government of Israel. Um, well, and they said that finally, something that all Middle Eastern countries can agree on, just no. And then they suggested, want to know how you can upgrade. <laughs> they, suggest, they suggested, want to know how you can upgrade, upgrade your Weetabix? Dot, 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 hummus was their answer. So I, I kind of like to think that actually curing... Peace in the Middle East, uh, as a result of this campaign, was 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 quite an achievement. Um, but then it went on to do more things. And what happened was the next morning we'd seeded it out with all the different breakfast TV shows um, and radio stations. We'd sent them Weetabix and beans because it had gone so mad on the internet that day. And uh, you know you had I don't know GM TV next morning. Piers Morgan was on it, was there eating his Weetabix and and beans and saying, you know, it's not too bad, isn't it? You know, all the radio DJs were trying it. It was in all the newspapers. It's basically the thing that broke Twitter uh, the day before. And then the next day, to, to really my disbelief, and, and, and I've never had a PR campaign that's done this before, um, we were watching the BBC Parliamentary Channel, and it started getting debated in, in Parliament. And no. an MP brings up the fact that this is a subject that's, even more divisive than Brexit and needs to be debated in the chambers. And 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 Jacob Rees-Mogg pipes up as well, you know, sort of extolling the virtues of, of the campaign and, and also the fact that, you know, the, they don't work together in his opinion. It was, and I, I was sitting there watching this happening, debating the House of Commons. I mean, what? Are you serious? <laughs> and that to me was the sign when we really struck gold from a, from a PR campaign. You know, by the end of the week, I think Weetabix had seen sales increase by 15%. Um, Sainsbury's released that data that they, sales had, you know, had jumped up by that amount. They did some research, and I think it showed that there was a 25% more likelihood people had expressed of buying, uh, buying uh, Weetabix than there was the week before. So in terms of real sales and actually translation into business results, as well as being you know, one of those brilliant things that, that we've ever had as a campaigner, Frank, it was also... Um, you know, really worked in terms of improving business performance for, for one of our clients. Wow. Well, phenomenal camp. That is amazing. Beat that, Dan. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to try some beans and uh, Weetabix later. You don't get them every week, put it like that. They, they, you don't, no. you know, then then no. you get from a, from a commercial point of view, you know, what you, you get them from a frank point of view. Um, and we had, we, had, we had a call just this morning and it's still a year, you know, nearly a year later. 
can we have a Weetabix and beans, please? And you get, you know, plenty of other clients, you know, wanting one of those. And I'm thinking, you know, to myself, well, look, they're not that easy to come up with. And, and to be honest, I couldn't have predicted it. It's going to become that big. I knew that, you know, when I was putting together these brands to create this bandwagon effect, I knew that that had a good chance of making it, you know, quite a nice big story. But I don't think anyone can predict that it's going to get as as big as as, as, as what it is. And people ask me, you know, what's what's the secret to it? I don't know it's a secret. I just think sometimes you make your own luck. Um, and, you know, we had a good story. We had good timing. We had a good sort of execution strategy to it. And then, you know, sometimes things just, just catch on and, and just hit the zeitgeist of the moment. And, and, and that did. And, and, you know, but you've got to make your own luck. You've got to go out there and, and, and think through it and think through how it might play. It doesn't always work out, but, um, you know, but, but you keep on trying and it, and it will. You guys and Frank PR are famous for creating those moments and those experiences. That Weetabix campaign has got to be one of your favourite moments, surely, just from what you've just been talking about. Have you got a favourite moment? in the 20-odd years of Frank PR? Well, I think I, I got, I, I'm going to answer that question with him giving you a couple that I love. Um, but uh, And then I'm going to say my favourite moment in my career because they're slightly different. But, you know, the stuff that, that, that we did at Frank, my, I guess if I was going to pick my two favourites, they'd go back a bit. And that's why I'm pleased we've done the Weetabix campaign very recently in recent times because, you know, when we're trading on sort of past campaigns and past glories. But we did a campaign... Um, which actually made our name back in, um, you know, we've been going about three or four years um, and we did a campaign for HP Source, similar to a Weetabix in that not a lot happens with HP Source. I mean, personally, I love HP Source uh, and it was a British brand that was, you know, old school British brand invented by British army officers when they were out in India um, back in the 1800s and the recipe of it had never changed in years. It was supplied to the House of Parliament which is why it's called HP Source because it was the it was kind of that's the only place it was available back when it was made. So that's some of the history to it. Um, and they came to us; they wanted um, some buzz around the brand um, just before they were about to do quite a big uh, ad campaign. So we looked at what was happening in February. It was one of the things we looked at, and I remember there was the Snooker World Championships at the time, um, and we looked at snooker as a sport and snooker as a sport was quite similar to HP in terms of it had been invented in another country. It was quite typically British. Um, and then we looked at creatively, what could we do? HP source was a brown source, snooker, has a brown bull uh, like that, out of all its balls like that. Anyway, so we did a deal, official deal with the World Snooker Authority to become the official sponsors of the brown ball in snooker. Um, obviously, they really hadn't had any demand for anyone to sponsor any of the other colour balls ever. Um, but we only wanted just the brown ball, just that one. That one will do. We wanted to sponsor that. And to commemorate that, and we were going to sponsor it for these world championships that were taking place. Incidentally, at the time, those world championships had like 200 hours of TV. So there wasn't a good reason why we were going to do it. And to commemorate this sponsorship deal, we signed up Jimmy White who was obviously a typical British, good old British boy. And um, we signed up Jimmy White to, uh, to, 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 to sing about our sponsorship. And as part of um, his, signing him up, we got him to agree to change his name um, for the tournament from Jimmy White to Jimmy Brown. Um, so White goes Brown. So he changed his colour of his name, I guess, as well. 
Um, and um, and he loved it. Um, Jimmy Brown. He actually preferred James Brown because in in uh, in sort of in a in a nod to uh, the famous and legendary musician. So 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 he changed his name all legally, and it cost him thirty six pounds. By the way, if any of you are interested in uh, in in doing um, the same sort of thing, he changed his name. We sent uh, his name change certificate to all the producers, the broadcasters, you know, the commentators on TV that this is how he had now changed his name. And it was being broadcast on the BBC, these hundreds of hours of coverage on the BBC. And the BBC went absolutely ballistic because they didn't know what to do. They thought it was commercial involvement in the sport. It wasn't. You know, it's not like we changed the name to Jimmy HP. It was, it was just Jimmy Brown. It was Brown Source, Jimmy Brown. Um, and um, all the controversy, the unique nature of the sponsorship, the fact that we were sponsoring Brown Ball, everything just coincided to create just so much fuss and furor for a week. Um, and actually, Jimmy did pretty well in that tournament. I mean, I, I kind of went along to it. It was at Wembley in the old days, the conference centre. If you remember, they used to have these, these the, the big snooker events. Uh, and I remember going along, and they were selling, like, merchandise, like, 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 Jimmy Brown special limited edition merchandise for while he was by this new identity while he changed his name. We got him to wear instead of like the black um, tux, he was wearing a brown tux and a little brown, you know, kind of waistcoat and stuff like that as he as he as he played in it. And that like, he was brilliant as a part of making it happen. But that <laughs> that was probably um, you know, my favorite campaign because it had that element. And there's a word that 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 when I set up Frank in 2000 that I used that sums that up beautifully there's a word which is what what our offer is really what the proposition of Frank is 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 all about creating talkability and talkability is a registered trademark of Frank and we use it a lot obviously and it's you know our vision our aim our ethos really to come up with ideas that, that you talk about but the favorite moment of my career which is another story and I'll tell a very distilled version of it the favorite moment of my career came at Limfranks, um, uh, and uh, I was at a, an awards dinner uh, once upon a time and happened to be, I was invited to a guest at a table, happened to be sat next to a chap called Will Whitehorn, who at the time was Richard Branson's right-hand man. Uh, and we were having a couple of glasses of wine together, had a very jolly time in the evening, and I was sort of said in conversation, what's, you know, what's Richard up to at the moment? Because well, actually, in a couple of weeks, the latest thing we're doing is going to appear on Baywatch. And Baywatch, at the time, was the biggest TV show um, in the world. Um, uh, and, yeah, I said, what's he going to be doing? So there's going to be a hot, you know, water, water skiing behind a blimp, little, little hot air balloon, um, because we're launching Virgin Cola. So was at the time they were launching Virgin Cola. And the blimp is going to be a Virgin Cola blimp. And that's that's going to be his his stunt. I said, that sounds good. I said, I said... You know what? I've got an idea here. There can't be a world record for that because probably no one's ever done it before. So that's why there won't be a world record. No one's water skied, you know, behind a hot air balloon. Um, and at the time, my client was the Guinness Book of Records. And so I said, how about we do it as an official world record attempt? And he goes, I love it. He goes, let me ask Richard in the morning. He asked Richard in the morning. Richard loved it. He called me back in the afternoon. He said, Richard loves it. So let me just speak to the producers at Baywatch. The producers at Baywatch loved it. And as it turned out, Baywatch was was very much written like the night before they filmed. It was that type of um, programme. So I spent the next uh, week or so on the phone to all the production team of Baywatch in LA, um, getting the Guinness Book of Records and how it would work in the in that in that particular episode into the script. 
I got the editor of the Guinness Book of Records to be part of the show. So he was going to um, validate the official world record attempt that he was doing and would be filmed in part, be part of the TV program. And it would just add to the story that, you know, this wasn't, he just wasn't uh, water skiing behind a, on a hot air balloon just for the sake of it. He was doing it because it was an official world record attempt with the Guinness Book of Records. So, so I saw the script and the Guinness Book of Records got amazing, you know, coverage in it and actually a scene whereby, um, whereby Branson got presented with a special gold book of the Guinness Book of Records by the editor. That's all part of the film. I thought, wow, client Guinness Book of Records is exciting. Um, and so, uh, you know, Will said, well, you better come out and make sure that all that works. And I said, lovely. So, uh, you know, the next week, literally how PR works, I was being flown out, upper class on Virgin, out to uh, LA. Um, and I got there the day before uh, everyone got there. Um, i.e. Branson and, and his team. And so I went and I thought, I'll pop along. I've been speaking to all the producers on Baywatch. I thought, I'll pop along and say hello to them. They were filming that day. They were filming for that for that, for that that episode. And they were filming the end scene of that episode because so they didn't do it in order when they just filmed, you know, they, they, they kind of filmed different scenes and, and whatever. And the last scene of the um, uh, show, it was called Molly. It was called The Stowaway was, was, was the... Um, uh, was the episode. And it was basically this girl who had stowed away in a boat that got sunk, that, that got left in the sea. She was stranded in the sea. And Richard Branson, as he was doing this world record attempt, spots her and rescues her. So that's the basic plot. She was called Molly. And the last scene, which is the one I turned up to while they were filming it, uh, just after I got off the plane, was um, uh, James Brown, we go back to James Brown again, but the real James Brown, singing Good Golly Miss Molly on the beach playing a gig. And so I get there and it's all set up and they're just about to film it and all these producers, I'm just checking on the script for the next day and they go, Graham, you know, it's been great to know. Do you want to be in the next scene? I go, yeah, sure. Uh. And... Um, <laughs> And there I am, clothed, you'll be pleased to know, um, behind um, behind James Brown, this is on his piano singing Good Golly Miss Molly, sort of clapping away in the backgrounds like that. And, um, you know, so my claim to fame is is that I've appeared on Baywatch, which is... Uh, uh, is true, and I've still got I've got I've got the video somewhere on somewhere on YouTube. You can find it, and I've got the, the stills that I've clipped from it of me on the show. And there I was in a slightly surreal scene, um, you know, on Will Rogers State Beach where they did the filming. Me, James Brown, um, and my debut and only appearance on 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 Baywatch. Anyway, we 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 kind of did the filming, and it was it was brilliant. Actually, that night also we went out for dinner. Um, then Branson came over on the plane in that evening. Um, we went to pick him up from the airport with Will, who'd come on on a different flight. I think Branson actually came in on an Air France flight, weirdly, because they'd been somewhere else. Um, and uh, we went out for dinner that night to some swanky LA restaurant uh, in Beverly Hills, probably, must have been, I think, with um, Pamela Anderson, David Hasselhoff, and all the cast and crew. So there I was, you know, with my editor of the Guinness Book of Records, my client as well. We all went out for this kind of dinner the night before, which I think went on to about two, three in the morning, and we were up at five o'clock, you know, ready to film for the next day. Um, it was a brilliant, brilliant experience, and that would probably be my favourite moment in PR, um, and that's going to be quite a hard one to eclipse. Blimey. <laughs> and what are you doing now? You, you've termed the phrase Dutch uncle. What are you up to at the moment? 
So in terms of what I'm doing, I, I bought Frank back uh, in the start of March last year. So um, it's coming up to a year ago. Obviously, I've been working on that for about six or nine months to make it happen. So when I, uh, we haven't even discussed it, but uh, I sold the business in 2007 to a bunch of Australians, public company in Australia, did my earn out, which was four years. Four years later, they didn't want me to go. I didn't really want to go either after the earn out. So I signed up for another four years in return for them giving me 25% of the business back. They gave me 25% of the business back. Uh, and then it got to the point, I guess I was about 50-ish, just turned 50. I was just a bit bored. I'd sort of done it for, for, for years. I'd sort of earned my money out of it when I'd sold it. I'd had 25% of the business. Um, and I sort of went, went into the background a little bit uh, of Frank and sort of went down to a day, day and a half a week um, and working with the management team here, but, but from afar. And then the business didn't do so well. And to be honest, and um, it lost its mojo perhaps a bit. I lost my mojo, certainly. I took my off the ball. I spent a couple of years basically going away a lot and playing golf, which actually were really nice <laughs> years. But from a business point of view, um, it wasn't so good. And then we started in about a year, six months before the pandemic start, I still started to get a bit more involved. The Australians said, hey, Gigi, can you just have a look at this a bit? I know you're not that involved anymore, but we're not sure this is heading in the right direction. They were very hands-off owners of, of, of their stake. And I had a look at it and could see what was going on with the business and start to get a bit more interested in it. Again, sort of rekindled my spark. And um, and that sort of led to the buyback. Then I sort of got so interested. And I thought, actually, this is a good agency, really, if we can clear up a few of the problems and issues with it. And the Australians didn't really care about it too much. So one thing led to another. That's why I bought it back. But in those intervening years as well, I, I wanted to sort of like... Um, as well as play golf, wanted to spend a bit of time helping and advising other businesses as a sort of non-exec, but not in the traditional non-exec way. I mean, and I'd always perceived non-execs to be a bit sort of like box-ticking roles that you took on from a corporate governance point of view, and um, a lot of businesses thought they should have one but didn't really know why they had one. So I never liked the idea of being that sort of person. I like to open my mouth and say what I think and be a bit more active than that. Um, so I came up with this term, which was Dutch uncle, which is actually a real phrase. Basically, uncle, someone that puts his arm around your shoulder, is your biggest fan, tells you you're fantastic, tells you you're brilliant. But the Dutch bit is being very down-to-earth, very open, direct, very frank, if you like. So can sometimes, you know, kind of challenge you a bit more than you, you kind of maybe want to be comfortable with, you know, cajole you, tell you off sometimes. You know, but but just just I wanted to become that sort of advisor that could say what I felt, as opposed to having to put a sock in it half the time and just you know say, oh, why is that variance and expenses you know fifty quid difference month on month? I wanted to make real business, um, you know, comments and commentary and get involved in it in a in a roll up my sleeves, get involved and be able to say what I think. So that was my term for Dutch uncle, and that's the way I was happy to work with other businesses. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I'd have loved that sort of person when I was growing up, going up front. I told you I kind of took my off the ball, lost my, my mojo a bit about six, seven years ago. You know, I could have done with someone to give me a bit of a kick up the arse then and, and, you know, got my thinking straight and got my head straight. It wasn't that person around. I could have done with the Dutch ankle, which is why I, I kind of quite like that. It's not for everyone. Some people, you know, kind of like hearing advice but don't want to listen to it. Then it's not sort of right. But if people want an active person that's been there, seen there, done it, 
um, and in the trenches and got their hands dirty doing it and had the highs and lows and come out of it pretty well, thankfully, um, then, then, then that's who I get involved with. So these days, and I still do it. So three days a week, I work full on at Frank, like full on. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays is my common day. I'm a twat, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, um, as I, I like to call myself. Um, and Mondays and Fridays, I really do my Dutch uncle and other bits, and you can find me on a golf course. So I work in, as a Dutch uncle with uh, not really PR agents necessarily. Fun enough, I work with a French PR agency, um, work with an experiential agency, a paid social agency, a sort of ad agency, digital agency, and I kind of work with them on a, on a sort of monthly basis, normally a half day a month. We'll do a board meeting and, um, you know, go through stuff, and, and I can be that that Dutch uncle normally with the founder or CEO of that business in, in terms of going. We'll sort of specialise in, I guess, zero to two million revenue um, agencies. That's normally my sweet spot because I've been there, seen there, done it. And that's normally where the hardest challenges to overcome to kick on for further growth come in. And normally those moments where they go from founder-operated businesses and they have to change their structure a little bit or they have to you know, think about other things that they've always thought about since starting the business up. So as they're scaling up, you know, that, those are the sort of businesses that I tend to get involved with with my Dutch uncle hat on. And, and I really enjoy it. And I can pick and choose the people that I work with and I can, you know, work with the people that I really enjoy working with. And what I really look for is those people that I think I've still got and I look for people with it, which is, as I call it, a twinkle in their eye. And that gets me excited again. So if someone's got a twinkle in their eye, doesn't matter where the business is at, that excites me because I can see they've got that and they really want to do something. And, and, and that kind of gets me going again. Dan, you've got a twinkle. Awesome. Phil Joe, Phil, <laughs> you've still got a twinkle. I was about to say the same for you, Mr. Joe. He's got a twinkle in your eye. You're still that cheeky chappy, although you're 104. You're still that cheeky chappy. Um, Graham, I've got so many more questions, but we've got to come to land. Two questions. One, what's firing you up for 2022? What's, what's, what's piquing your interest at the moment? Um, and then the second question I'll come on to in a minute. What's, piquing, what's, what's keeping me interested? Look, for, for, for me, you know, I've taken, on, I've taken back my baby. Um, and um, 2022 is a, is, is a big year where we've got, you know, a growth target for a business that hasn't really been growing. You know, grew for the first sort of 10, 12 years beautifully. Then, um, then focused a bit too much on profit and not so much on revenue growth. Now, I don't even really look at profit, to be honest. I just look at revenue growth again. So what's, what's peaking me is, is doing great work and coming up with those, those Weetabix-type campaigns as often as possible. Because I think, for me, the key to Frank in particular, most agencies, but definitely for Frank, which is a creative ideas-led agency that wants to create talkability, is we've got to create those moments of talkability. So, you know, that's the things that I'm really focused on for this year. Brilliant. No, that's awesome. And final question, Graham, as we come to land so you can get your lunch, is as an agency, we're all about taking complex problems and making them wonderfully simple. What's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? That's a good question. And I was doing a lot of thought about this uh, earlier. Um, and, and, and this morning, perhaps, uh, is when it, when it hit me, is that what's really hard is, um, which could be made a lot simpler, is drying your back is it's really really hard <laughs> coming out of the shower to, to get that bit just just down here particularly in the the sort of the bit the, 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 the bit. bit 
of the back like that. Also, if you've got a bit of a hairy back, which I have, it's not maybe my most appealing feature. Um, but, you know, also drying <laughs> up, it's that you can't, you, you don't know that it's dry. Obviously, in the chest, you can feel it, and your arms straight like that, your undercarriage dry, whatever you can, but your back, you don't know. And, and, and I think it is a problem that could definitely be made simple. There are various solutions that I did then think of on the train on the way in that you could do. You could have the, you know, like you go in a spray tanning booth. You could have one of those in your in your house that True. you know just blow 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 drying sort of thing. Or there could be some sort of contraption, a bit you know, with a with a hand on it that, that does do that. But there's still no way of testing in that moment, particularly when you're wearing a nice sh- shirt. Just to come out shirt and you come out and your back isn't dry completely and you put the shirt on and then you kind of go straight out and it's like wet at the back and looks like you've been sweating it's a bit unsuck it's not sweat it's because you haven't dried that spot that you didn't know was wet so i'd like to see that made simple please. graham Sorry graham you're that. the only person who's ever come up with that do you realize <laughs> i think there's a world record there somewhere isn't there <laughs> but you are you are the second person out of 30 mm-hmm. previous that had arson wenger in the lift and that's oh, that's the that's well. I, d- I don't like the way that you said I had asked thing. <laughs> it's not quite what it's ups and downs. Ups and downs. But no, you so yeah, <laughs> There's a soundbite for you. I don't think that second bit. I don't think we're ever going to get anybody else talking about their back scratching either. It's brilliant. So <laughs> back, right, back drying. You don't know it's drying. Back drying. So scratching is quite good. Scratching. Scratches. I actually use my toothbrush. Yeah. Sometimes to scratch the two, you know, that's quite a useful thing instead of having one of those funny Amazing. back stretches. But Amazing. The, dry, the drying one is a different, whole different problem, yeah. whole different ballgame. Well, I think you've just, I mean, we should have really started with that question at the beginning, shouldn't we, Dan? That could have taken it in any number of yeah, directions. <laughs> that is a whole podcast episode in itself, isn't it? Just the back scratching, back drying episode. Yeah. Maybe we should do like a, a second episode with Graham and the back drying. So from Granddad, Granddad Jones and Dan to our Dutch uncle, thank you very much. Graham, it's been a pleasure. Good. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed that. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.